Let's talk about the future of news. I want you all to know that we are fighting the fake news. The state of journalism today. Telling both sides of a, of a controversial story. I think we must be unbiased. It's uh, honesty, fairness, uh, truth. That is our job. That is our job. That is our job. we go we have pressed all the buttons now on the mixing desk uh, and i'm finally this is i think this is the first sort of post-covid interview that we've managed to do here on the arrow man in stockholm podcast my name is philip o'connor if you're listening to that you may have known that already you may be coming to, to this for the first time because today i have a wonderful guest with me and we're going to talk about all things media and sweden and swedia and everything in between heba habib you're very very welcome to the podcast hi phil lovely to be here and how are you in, in these crazy times um i mean i think like everyone it's uh a corona wave <laughs> like corona waves happen uh, there are good days there are bad days there are wobbly days but mostly well and tell me now you just before we sort of went on air here you were telling me that you've been here for sort of three and a half um, four yeah years. roughly th- i think in august it'll um, be four years okay it's not like you're counting or anything right? uh no <laughs> <laughs> let stage. me like just scratching out <laughs> okay, so i always go back to on, on the wall myself <laughs> yeah it was like ter- terry Waite, the british diplomat who was uh he was held hostage in lebanon and he was one of these people who sort of scratched out or radiator and that you know and i was uh saying it's like 21 years the other day since i moved here with this very very large suitcase and i don't think i have any that was in that suitcase left but that's oh, wow. that's a whole other podcast right there <laughs> how about you're in sweden you're working as a journalist could you just tell me a little bit about yourself you were born in cairo in egypt as far as i know but that's yes. not where your story has taken place right no uh so i uh yes i am a very proud kyrene and uh but i didn't actually grow up in cairo my father is a diplomat and uh it's kind of the family business my grandfather was also a diplomat um, and we lived in many countries, um, Malaysia and uh, and uh, South Africa and Namibia. And then our last post was in England, uh, hence my inexplicable accent, <laughs> which pa- which baffles people all the time. Wouldn't be at a place on the BBC, <laughs> I have to say. <laughs> Thank you so much. And um, and uh, and then yeah. So and then I I went to university in Cairo. I studied international law, Cairo University. Mm-hmm. And uh, but I've been working as a journalist in some capacity or other ever since I was 16. Um, And I started in local publications in Egypt, very small uh, and then bigger like uh, Egyptian publications. And then I went on um, to freelance for foreign media. Um, uh, outlets like the Global Post. I worked for the, for their from them for some while. I worked with a lot of v- freelance with a lot of people, and then uh, eventually I ended up working for the Washington Post. Um, and I was in the Cairo bureau for what was it? Maybe three, yeah, three years, I think. Um, and. Um, and then, uh, yeah, and then I kept working for the Post when I came here uh, through some, I don't know, I managed to convince them to keep me on. Yeah. This is uh, a really good idea. Yeah. Hear me out. <laughs> yeah, basically, that's what I did. Um, so I, my plan was to come, to, I came with my partner. And um, yeah, I'm a, a love refugee, as people love to call it. We're and all in that boat. <laughs> We're all in that boat, sister. And, um, and then, uh, anyway, and then... What happened next was that, uh, um, what did happen next? <laughs> no, no, it took, I, I, no, I remember like our idea, like we wanted to start a publishing house together, my, my partner and I, and then so. that didn't, that didn't quite pan out and I panicked. So I, <laughs> I contacted the post and I was like, hello. Yeah. Can I write something, please? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I actually, I, I think I, I think I'm the only person who has done this ever. Um, I, I started covering Syria from mm. Sweden. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, if I was to be crass about it, I'd say most Syrians are already here. Yeah, so that's, that's that was not such a bad Yeah, thing. yeah, no, but that was kind of what how I persuaded the post was that um, I have like I have a network here, hmm. um, I, and I so we came to an agreement, and basically I kept working for them for a few years, and the idea was that I would do both 
Syria stories and uh, and migration stories. Yeah. Um, it ended up being mostly Syria stories. Yeah. But uh, that went on for a while, and then uh, and then I entered Hyper Island. I I studied oh, here right, yeah. and um and sort of flip flopped and um and yeah and ever since then I've been working on uh, a non fiction book. Cool. Uh, about Syria. Uh, and yeah, and then I decided recently to resume freelancing yeah. as a as a journalist. I thought, why the heck not? So I started. It was funny the way I started uh, in. Uh, I decided because I I covered ISIS for a long time. Yep. Uh, both in Egypt, all over the the Middle East, mm. and um, I was and suddenly I got this. I I became very fascinated by right wing extremist movements mm. in the Nordics. And I was like, well, why can't I parlay this experience into uh, into covering? Uh, I mean, extremist movements are all alike, basically. Yeah. Um, so I was like, why not? I'll do that. And then and then the whole Jimmy Ackerson, you know, with, it now feels like a lifetime ago. In March, the whole thing happened with um, at the border. And I was like, okay, time to get back in the game. So okay. yeah, and I was like, okay, I'm going to start building a new beat for myself. Yeah. <laughs> but this is... Uh, yeah, in uh, right-wing movements. And then suddenly Corona happened. I was like, okay. <laughs> yeah. That kind of all, all the best laid plans went west. Yeah, happened, totally. You know? Totally. This took it completely... Like, this went on a completely different... Like, yeah. <laughs> so, so the guy there that you mentioned, Jimmy Orkerson, is the leader of the Sweden Democrats who have their roots in the neo-Nazis in the late 1980s, early 1990s. One of the original founding members was a volunteer with the Waffen-SS in the Second World War. And, you know, Jimmy put on a suit and now... I, everybody wants it to be taken seriously, right? But essentially what you're dealing with is fellas who've just put the, sort of the bother boots away. Um, and he made a trip down to, was it the border in, in Greece or Turkey? Or it was, was it? it's between Greece and Turkey. Yeah, okay, so, so he went down there. It's like a contested area already. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it must be if Jimmy's down there, you know? Yeah. <laughs> he was down there handing out leaflets saying Sweden yes. is full, please don't come to Sweden. Yeah, basically. And interestingly enough, actually, because at the time we're talking, it's very important to put a histori- historical time stamp on this. So we've gone through the corona thing in Sweden, different to the rest of the world, and there was a lot of consensus until this point, right? But then Jimmy came out over the weekend. Coincidentally, there was a leaders' debate on TV here, and he went bananas, you know, calling for the head of the state epidemiologist, and this mm. is a disaster. And in the paper today, he's called what happened in Sweden a massacre, right? Yeah. So that now there was a, that consensus that existed before doesn't exist now. So we're into a new phase of this where the consensus is out, and now it's time to start the political point scoring again. Yeah. But enough about Jimmy. Um. But it's, it's interesting what you say there, the parallels that you're drawing between ISIS and right-wing movements. But before we get to that, mm. um, tell me a little bit about your experience of living here in Sweden, right? Because in the beginning of this pandemic, mm. um, the area that I live in was and still is one of the hardest hit in terms of the amount of people who got sick, the amount of people who needed intensive care and the amount of people who died. Mm. And the narrative around that at the time coming from the public health authority here was, oh, maybe they didn't understand, et cetera, et cetera. So as a person who doesn't, who understands Swedish, but maybe yeah. doesn't speak it brilliantly yeah. how what's your experience of this pandemic being like in terms of the access that you've had to information um i think i for me this whole um i find it very problematic the whole uh, public health authority thing about uh you know migrants basically migrants of color mm. uh, not having access to information i think it's nonsensical because even if people don't have access to information and there is definitely a problem i would say in uh in access to information in 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 different languages in sweden in general i mean they uh, there is a concerted attempt to do so for sure but it's very hard to figure out where to find it Mm. like you know the information's out there and i i mean i can it's i'm a journalist it's my job to find stuff but i i think for someone else maybe it might be uh a little trickier but for me Okay, so there there is this pandemic. All these people, all these pe- all these migrants, a lot of them come from more torn countries, countries uh, where you know there has been strife and chaos. They're very invested in the news. They're mm. very invested in knowing what's going on, and so they know exactly what what to do. Until to this day, I think like if you, it's very you you know we're here in central Stockholm sort of but if you go I'm sure in Chista you'll see people are still wearing masks still mm. and they were doing that at the start of the pandemic I yeah. mean they were the only people trying to take precautions but unfortunately you know this because it's very hard um uh, a lot of a lot of the a lot of people like this are working class and they have um and they and they, their occupations don't allow them to stay home they I, I mean the way the their lives go there that's why it's spread hmm. 
and um so i sorry i went to a bit off that's, point that's but, fine that's what this podcast kinda, is all about <laughs> but this to me is like the the main issues regarding this mm. like, i thought it was extremely like on a personal level i found it very offensive mm. honestly to to make this assumption i remember being i was in portugal when this broke out and they were just about to close down italy so i was at a women's soccer tournament and they cancelled the final so that mm. the italian team could fly home mm. and i came back and the following day after i came back i was over in tiansta mm. And in Tiansta Centrum, it's like in the northwest suburbs of Stockholm, right? And mm. there's a lot of Somali people living out there. Mm. And this is before this, you know, we became aware of who was dying and why. And uh, I remember going in this particular door. I always park in a certain place and then I go through this particular door. And mm. usually you would see Somali men grouped around a table with small cups of coffee in front of them, arguing over absolutely everything. You know? <laughs> Because that's how they pass the time. You yeah, know? And then they course. go back to, to work or whatever. But I walked in this day. It was a Friday. And I walked in this day. And they were all sitting at different tables. Now, they yeah. were still all talking together. Yeah, right? yeah, but still. But that was before there was any real recommendations for the public health agency. That kind of thing. And that was, you know, following that then. I think it was the following weekend when they came out with this thing that, oh, you know, that you didn't have stuff available in their language. But since then, I've been speaking to one girl in particular in the Somali community mm. who was saying not only is that not true it's actually the opposite of what was true yeah and she drew the parallel that if you look at how the coronavirus and COVID-19 has been handled in Somalia she, she said like she actually she also grew up in England like your good self mm. but she said that there was so much information on WhatsApp and not only that it was accurate information on WhatsApp yeah. about what to do the problem she said was is exactly that what you've raised right there mm-hmm. you can't drive a bus from your couch yeah exactly you can't work from home if you're a taxi driver no and these were the people who were collecting people at the airport who'd been to Italy skiing or whatever, and yeah. all of a sudden they sort of, uh, they got caught up in it. When you see the information that you're available and that's available to you mm. in Sweden, mm. and when you see what's available internationally, how do you put those two things together? What do you think of the information that you see mm. from the media here in Swedish? in English, in mm-hmm. Arabic, and mm-hmm. what do you see from the Washington Post and from Al Jazeera, from what other media you consume? Uh, I think it's interesting to me. Um, I, th- I think, th- at f- I mean, it's been in waves as well, I have to say, mm. I think the Swedish media, because at the beginning there was this defensiveness yeah. about uh, about the strategy, and, and it was a bit vague also, like the information available was a little bit confusing and whereas there was i mean everyone was confused internationally but i think the information available in sweden was definitely very very muddled uh and then whereas like international media was things were a bit more clear the coverage uh was comprehensive whereas in sweden also was very limited like Mm. you know it took a while for people to realize oh you know this is hitting different people differently Mm. this is uh um you know the 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 elderly how this is affecting the elderly how this is um so yeah there's been definitely you know less i would say the swedish media in general is much less critical than the international mm. media first of all um and of course this is i mean for example uh dn has has i mean they i think they've been doing very interesting work um but Maybe other outlets, less so. Um, so that's Doggins New Heater, which yeah. is kind of the paper of record here. You know, yeah, everybody exactly. looks to them over the breakfast table. Go, okay, this is what Sweden looks like. Yeah. Know? So I think a lot of their coverage has been very interesting, but uh, initially, yeah, it was a bit. Uh, it's just it's different methods of doing things, and I think also what's what's interesting to me is there's this weird climate of fear in Sweden. Uh, when it come when you talk to people, people are very hesitant to say, you know, they're they're trying very hard. I mean, this is also my experience covering is that people are very hesitant to give a decisive statement about anything, mm. and this has like been mind boggling to me because you want to like, you know, mm. you want a soundbite, you yeah. want something like very clear and 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 that hasn't been the case. It's been very woo. Yeah. We, uh, we always talk about that quote that you can hang your hat on. Your yeah. whole story. Yeah, can exactly. Go that, exactly. You know? And that's so hard to get. Like, it's hard to see it in mm. the when you're reading Swedish media. And it's hard to get it when you are a journalist mm. just out in the field. And do, do you think, because I, I don't know, I, I usually say that after sort of 21 years here, 
I can't remember what it was like when I was here for four years. Do you know yeah, what I mean? So it's, like it's a different experience. And I think to a certain extent, you become immersed in it. You accept it. You yeah. learn to live with it. You learn to work around it. Mm. And do you think it's this thing? Because, you know, the, the finger is always pointed from the outside at the consensus society that everybody has to agree. Do you think it's that? Do you think it's a fear of sticking out? or Definitely. I think it's definitely. And uh, I think there there's... Um it's weird to me, Phil, because, you know, initially this was driving me bonkers. Like, why? <laughs> like, Still I mean, driving me bonkers I mean, like, after most of my years. career is, is talking to, has been talking to people who, if they give me the wrong quote, they're dead. Yeah. You know? And then suddenly I'm here and people are like, oh, send me the quotes. Uh, can I check? Can I change my quotes slightly? And I'm like, what is this? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That, that's it's know. so confusing and i mean i'm i mean i respect it of course it's 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 different different societies work in different in different ways but definitely i feel like i just it just baffled me like why like why why are you so why this fear and people yes so the, it definitely is something to do i would say with yantelo and, and yeah. the consensus society for sure yeah. there is a definite uh hesitation yeah. In saying anything. Like, people are very measured in their words here. Yeah, I think it's that thing. Um, I, I noticed in the very beginning, right? And I can only assume that it was like this in kind of the Second World War or whatever, that there was a real sort of unified response. Yes. And the criticism of that was not a good thing to be involved in. You know, mm. so I remember saying in the very beginning of it, and I actually must unblock the guy on Twitter now because he's actually a nice guy. But I remember saying in the beginning that when I was looking at the, the very basic Swedish mitigation strategy, which was wash your hands, stay mm. home if you've got symptoms, and we have to protect our elderly, right? And I remember thinking, I wrote on Twitter at the time that uh, I don't know if this is that great a uh, mitigation strategy. You yeah. might need more here. And this guy went mad at me for, you know, you're spreading misinformation. All, and I just blocked him. Because yeah. it wasn't what he said. I'm happy to have the discussion with anybody. It was the aggressive way that yes, he said it. exactly. And there was an awful lot of aggression for people going, look, at, you have to believe Tegnell. You have to believe the state epidemiologist. Listen to me. I'm a journalist. I don't have to believe anybody. I don't believe anyone. Yeah, in fact, it's better if I don't believe a word they That's say. That's my job, not to believe until yeah, I have proof. You know, I'm the doubting Thomas here, poking Jesus in the side going, does it hurt yet, you know? <laughs> And, and that's the purpose of it. You're there yeah, to be annoying. Mm. So, but, but what that sort of robbed us of at the time, it, 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 like now in hindsight, was that I referred to it on another podcast as being, there was a little bit of discussion, but no debate. Yes. And now, you know, we can sit there and we can kind of count the dead. And I was actually speaking to a scientist the other day who didn't want their name used. But that person said to me, look, at, you know, we got a lot of things wrong. But the thing is that everybody who was going to die is dead now. And like now, this is a person who has been involved in discussions around what the mitigation strategy would be. Yeah. Now you're dealing with scientists; it's no wonder that they don't want those comments yeah, for course. public consumption, right? Mm. But if we had been able to discuss those things then, and again, it comes down to things around why the old folks' homes and the retirement homes failed so badly. Mm. But it, like it seems to me now that when Jimmy Orkison is out going for people, that no, nobody wants to have the discussion that he's having because no, he's basically no. going to blame immigrants in the end anyway. But we need to have a discussion around if it was privatisation, if it's casual labour, mm. if it was a lack of investment in personal protective equipment, mm. if it's a lack of training. Because these it, you know, these things are not... you know, It's the first time it's happened in a long time, but these things are coming back. Mm. What were people internationally asking you from your reporting for the Washington Post yeah no I wasn't reporting I've I, I reported uh, I mean I'm freelance now so I've been reporting for the independent I've rep I've been reporting for Christian Science Monitor um, and a few other outlets uh, so a mixed a mixed bag of outlets but yeah there has been um, uh, a lot of confusion it's like <laughs> what uh, and I uh, um I think the assumption is there's still this idea abroad uh, that this image of Sweden as being, you know, this socialist super state kind mm. of, you know, like a socialist ideal where uh, where um, uh, everyone, you know, everyone is equal. Everything is great. Yeah, I, I actually tripped over some equality on the way here today. <laughs> fucking everywhere it's just like slopping all over in the street <laughs> exactly. it's ridiculous drowning in it. i know it's just you're drowning in the stuff and uh, <laughs> um so f i think for example the idea of explaining why the elderly died was extremely confusing hmm. for, for 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 editors who don't they were like what privatization uh like the the, the i so it it doesn't it doesn't jibe with what people perceive sweden to be hmm. and i also think and this is I mean, 
uh, I mean, there's also, I'm sure you're aware, there's a massive like discussion in media now about diversity and uh, and the you know the lack of uh, the, the the I mean, I'm, of course, I'm speaking about Western media, not the rest yeah. of the world, but that how Western media there's a problem of uh, representation of representation, and um, so I think it was also confused. Like it, it it didn't make sense to a lot of. It's still hard to compute that. And I've seen that, like, for example, I've seen other British outlets, especially, they've fallen into this trap of like, oh, this ideal with blonde people. Like, I, I remember, like, I remember one article described Sweden as uh, people in Kungstragarden as flaxen haired families. <laughs> Good Lord. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you're like, but this isn't Sweden anymore. The, the, this is the thing that sort of, you know, after 20 years here, I just, I, you kind of feel like John the Baptist shouting his truth in the desert. And that's, <laughs> totally. that's two biblical references in a podcast. <laughs> I'm not allowed anymore. So if you hear any more, stop me, right? But this idea that, and it's amazing because we're talking the day after the Olaf Palme uh, murder mm-hmm. investigation was mm-hmm. ended, right? People still see the Sweden the day before he died as being the Sweden that exists now. Yeah. And it's such a totally different it's country. It's a very different place. On all level. But does that mean that we've failed? Does that mean that you and I have failed to tell the story internationally of Sweden? I mean, it's an ongoing process, Phil. I mean, it's very... Can you say conclusively that we've uh, we've failed? Well, I think if there's so many people out there who believe that Sweden is flaxen-haired families, then we have. Because <laughs> That's probably true. You know, 20%... If 20% of people... I was talking to somebody the other day, uh, actually, the lads on the Tutto Boluto podcast I mentioned to you earlier. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the biggest podcast in Sweden. It's by far the best podcast in Sweden. And these guys, they ask great questions, but they also realise that they don't know what they're asking about sometimes. Ah. So we were talking about Zlatan Ibrahimovic, right? And now that's almost a third biblical reference because he refers to himself as God. But the effect that that man has had on Swedish society, and yet, at the moment now, when he's not really very high profile internationally, we've gone back to this thing of thinking that Sweden is ABBA and meatballs and Ikea, you know? When the truth of Sweden is that it's a massively multicultural place. It's an extremely turbulent political place. It is one of the petri dishes of neoliberalism in the te- in like I mean if you can make pro- you can run schools at a profit here mm. which you can't do in anywhere else even Pinochet's Chile has dropped that premise mm. uh, so there's so many things going on the healthcare system here in Stockholm when we're sitting is being privatized very very publicly so the idea that people are still imagining this social democratic Palmas people's home you know mm. I just don't get it. and we must be I do think that certain people who commissioned me and I want to see if your experience is the same right mm-hmm. they come to you with that vision of the flaxen-haired yes. families. Yes. And if you go to them with something different, do they go, ah, that's not really what we want at Heba? They're, they're confused. They're like, I, I mean, I think this is less the case now. Like, they, um, I think early on when I did some Sweden coverage, there was a bit of that, but now there's, but there are, there are questions like that. But how is that possible? Is that, are you sure? Like, there's doubt even in my reporting, like, are you quite sure about that? Yeah. Are you quite sure about that? Like, man, man, I live here. Yeah, yeah. No, I swear to God, it's true. <laughs> Dear editor, please. <laughs> but that, that's amazing. But do, do, can you draw a parallel for me with when you were covering ISIS? Yes. ISIS, or when you were working at a Cairo or these places? Yeah. Did the same misconceptions exist about Egypt? This idea, and I've got to tell you, you know, for me, it was Anwar Sadat. Yeah. It was, you know, like in, in later teenagers, uh, the Muslim Brotherhood. Do people have the same misconceptions? Do we all have misconceptions about countries because our understanding is so shallow? I, I think so. I think this is something very... Pro- and this is something I think you people discuss a lot like this has been an ongoing discussion for years i think in foreign on foreign desks um especially because i have to say unfortunately again there's a big problem of diversity of who gets to be a foreign correspondent Mm. in the western world and um and very often foreign correspondents don't speak arabic even in the arab world um and uh and it's how can you um so a lot of things are misunderstood. A lot of things are misinterpreted. A lot of things like you, the bias is pushed sometimes, I think. Like, I, and I'm sure you've had this experience where you've had to push back against mm. a particular editor's vision of a certain place. Yeah. And um, so I don't see anything different, but it's in, on one, in, in one sense, it's, there's, I feel like almost like this um, truffle snuffling in uh, in in the arab world for like what's the worst what's the worst what's yep. the worst whereas in sweden or the rest of the world oh but you know it's this 
it's the best place. It's a paradise. So like yeah, it. so don't do you, people. I think there is a problem with contesting that. Hmm. Like, and it's not, and neither place is is perfect. I mean, yeah. I think this is. I think this is what's problematic mostly about uh, about about media uh, in general is like. Um, what is objectivity? I mean, mm. I mean, this is an old, uh, an old chestnut, of course. But uh, are we truly objective? Who, who gets to decide what's objective or not? Um, and um, uh, so, I really think it's yeah. As I said, it it goes both ways, but in different in. Uh, and I think there is a clinging to this idea of Sweden as this, I mean, the Nordics, this Scandinavia fetishization, yeah. I think, um, uh, of, um, uh, and shout out to our mutual friend, Jane. Mr. <laughs> Fido, Mr. Fido, how are you? She's uh, on maternity leave, but she'll be yeah. back, don't worry. Uh, who, who, actually, we've had very, very interesting discussions about this idea of a benign hmm. white race who are nice, who are kind, who are good, and somehow that expiates for all the sins of the west yeah. in the way and i think people like to cling to that i mean westerners like to cling to that narrative a little yeah. bit one of the things i noticed from covering elections here especially over the last five or six years is um my disappointment in social democracy and we're in the cradle of social democracy really mm. sweden's post-war social democracy has held up the million programmet where they built a million homes in 10 years and yet some of the absolute harshest laws in terms of immigration that I've seen, Denmark seizing people's property when they arrive to pay for their upkeep. Seizing, yeah, gold. Yeah. gold. Oh people, <laughs> like, the, the, if you seek asylum now in Sweden, what they're trying to do is they're trying to make it like for a limited time only, after which time you'll be repatriated and, and this kind of thing. The way that, you know, the people who actually arrived here in 2015 have been treated. So this idea that, you know, they're sort of naive and benign, and that it's not really... I mean, if we go back to when Anders Bering Breivik uh, murdered those children on Utøya, and directly after that, Jens Stoltenberg was the Norwegian Prime Minister at the time, and he'd called for more openness and more democracy, and he was voted out. Mm. And in fact, the party that Breivik had been a member of as a young man, which is a far-right anti-immigrant party, was part of the next government there. Mm. You know, So this idea that it is somehow, you know, like, oh, let's all just sort of sit around and sing Kumbaya. As a person who lived outside of Egypt when you were growing up, but yes. you were proudly Egyptian, yes. and you had a family who was involved in the foreign service there, yes. right? So you saw Egypt from the outside. Uh, you know obviously how Egypt was perceived by the rest of the world at yeah. that time, right? You would have been very aware of that. Mm -hmm. If I went to Egypt today, right, and you and I consume kind of the same media yeah, here, right, Washington Post, all these kinds of places, mm -hmm. would I be surprised at what I see? Yeah, because Egypt's bizarre, so yes, <laughs> probably. Yeah. I think... In a good no, way. No, I think, I think, I know, I think you would, uh, there's some things would definitely, you know, it would make sense, but I think the lived experience, you... You get, you get a, just a taste of a place, really, when you read the media. I believe, yeah. like you, you have this, you build a, an idea, but the lived experience is always something very, very different. And of course, and and how politics, you know, um, determines how people live is it's very it's very interesting to see in person. Mm. Like you, you assume you assume certain things, you know, these rigid ideas, and then you're like, okay, well. You know. Maybe that's not how it was. No, all. not really, because I, I, I mean, it's very hard to, to also to describe how. Um, I mean, Egypt. Okay, politically things are bad, uh, but uh, but it's hard to also explain. Like for example, the social solidarity that exists. Like mm. there are these networks of care that are almost anarchic, I believe, yeah. and um, and uh, so that's hard to that's hard to 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 I think to write about in the media because I mean. How could you even describe that? Um, whereas, for example, it's very hard. Like, you don't assume when you go to Sweden, you're like, okay, well, every, the government's going to take care of me. Like, when you read the media, yeah. you're like, okay, I'm going to go to Sweden. All these things will be sorted out for me, blah, 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 blah. But then you also don't realize when you arrive there, oh, it's very hard to operate in this society on other levels. So it's different level. Again, you, you, only, you only get the... You get as much as you can, but also you're limited by what is considered newsworthy mm. and what is considered worthwhile. And this is something that I also constantly grapple with as a journalist, because sometimes the stories that I'm most interested in are not, yeah. they're just not interesting to, to anyone else. <laughs> but, but this brings me on to my next question, right? Because to a certain extent, um, 
the whole idea of how much responsibility is on you as the journalist and how much responsibility is on me as the consumer of media to actually go and find out because we create these opinions about things like you know there was an Irish woman uh, an ex-soldier who married a Muslim man and basically joined ISIS oh, and wow, then, okay. then there was the talk of you know should her and our children be repatriated to Ireland at the state expense oh, yes, I remember all that. Now, Lisa yeah. Smith I think her mm. name was right but then all of a sudden in the course of that discussion you know we talk about journalism especially newspaper journalism as wrapping tomorrow's chip right <laughs> but people become experts mm. in ice you've no idea what you're talking about how much responsibility is on you as a journalist to try to explain this which you've done in your work mm. and how much is you know because you can't explain everything in six or eight or hundred words or a thousand no. words how much responsibility is then on the reader to go you know what i should read a little bit more about this before i open my big mouth on <laughs> facebook i think um I think I think um, it's a very it's a very interesting question, Phil. Um, because I believe, like, I believe, yes, a big load is on the reader to to really uh, to really also understand things more in depth. Because yes, it's limited. What you can do as a journalist is is limited by the medium. It's minute. But if you get a diversity of opinions, if you go in, if you delve. Uh, but I also, I don't want to restrain free speech. Like, mm. you know, I don't want people, yes, I think I'm not going to be like, I know I got this. I, I mean, I've, I'm sure you've seen this accusation in a lot of, um, on Facebook and social media is like, why is everyone an epidemiologist now? Yeah. Why does every, it's like, I mean, people can have an opinion of, about things without being an epidemiologist. True. It doesn't yeah. mean, doesn't mean their opinion is, is worth anything. Yeah. Often not, but it doesn't mean they shouldn't express it. <laughs> and, um, uh, but I think actually, but I think there's a big responsibility on the media to improve. Mm. I think we're, I think we are going, we are definitely, there's a moment of flux right now. That's interesting to see. The tides are turning. Mm. I think there, I mean, it's very interesting to see what's happening in newsrooms in America, especially now this, there's a massive moment of reckoning. Yeah. There is a realization that there is a problem. There mm. is a problem because no, not every voice is represented. Not every perspective is given space. Yeah. Um, and that also contributes to, no, I wouldn't say misinformation, but misunderstanding often. Or, or li limit let's say limitations in understanding, which, which again um, influences what the reader believes and the reader and the consumer, uh, I mean, of course, the, the consumer, how the consumer perceives certain places. Mm. So... As somebody who's worked with a lot of foreign desks, right? If we mm. go back, essentially the job of foreign correspondent has always been sort of, you know, a post-colonialist thing, right? Totally. We send out a white person from London or New York or from Washington and they go to this place where they don't understand the culture. Mm. They often don't understand the language. They're not around long enough to learn it. They bring with them, you know, the baggage of a, usually a sort of a privileged education in, you know, Oxford or Cambridge or wherever it was. Mm. Uh, and they go there and then they disappear again, right? But you as an Egyptian person, now, okay, you grew up in the foreign service in a different place and that kind of thing, mm. but you would have, in my opinion, probably a totally different perception and a totally different way of evaluating what is news in Egypt and the Middle East to me. Have you found that to be, and I think I know the answer to this, have you found that to be a benefit or a burden in your work? Both, I would say. I think um, I think that, help, that has helped me sniff out stories faster, for sure. Mm -hmm. uh, but it's also, and I'm, I'm sad to say this, but I feel like often like you're doubted. Like you're, 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 you are considered biased because you're from the country that you're covering or from the region that you're covering. Um, and now you're, and now I'm considered biased <laughs> for being like, I'm sure you've gotten this foreign reporters don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> I've had that all my life. Basically, so there's nothing new. That guy doesn't know what he's talking yeah, about. Yeah, but I was like, whoa, what is this? <laughs> um, anyway, but uh, yeah, there's, there's a skepticism from, Again, this is working with Western media outlets. Uh, th there is a skepticism about what I have to say, what I consider important, what I think. Uh... So you have to fight extra hard to have your stories out there. Even though it's your, it really is your story. In a way. Like, it's my country. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's... But there is this idea that I don't understand. I'm a non-American, for example. Mm. I'm, I'm, non, I'm not a Westerner. So I don't understand what the Western reader wants to read. This is that somehow there needs to be this translator for like, it's weird. Like there's two translators. Yeah, so yeah. I translate this 
Arab world to yeah. the the foreign uh, correspondent, and then and then and then they translate. If I mean, because I've also worked as a fixer, so it it, it goes like that. Hmm. And then and then when it's your when you are on your own doing your own reporting, there's also like. Hmm. <laughs> I like hmm. <laughs> like, sometimes that that sort of annoys me. I love a hands-on editor. I love somebody who'll tell you, "Look, at this is the kind of thing I want. This is how you can yes, tell the story better." Of right? But what I don't like is when they adjust what you've done to make it palatable for an audience. Yes. Because, oh my god. Yes. Because there's something in there that's gonna stick in their craw, right? Yeah. So you mentioned there, you know, what the Western reader wants to read, and my point has always been what they need to read, right? I went to Ireland to report on. We've had two referendums there. One was on. Um, same-sex marriage and the second one was on abortion because we had some of the most restrictive legislation in the world there and i reported as an irish person in swedish for swedish radio and you know you had the standard people sort of you know clapping back at you going oh this guy is biased yada 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 but, mm. but i went there to tell a very very specific story in a very specific way and to give both sides with that kind of thing but there's so little understanding and this is still you know white european nation member mm. of the eu on the edge of europe and yet there is still i would say zero understanding of Ireland in Sweden like oh, zero really? oh yeah no okay. like nothing you know okay. and um, even yesterday I was going to record a thing for uh, for with another guy in the studio and I went in there to go, this guy was going in like a football supporter going come on England and I was going no <laughs> okay <laughs> that's exactly what an Irish person does not want to hear <laughs> I, ju- I just spoke to Sweden's biggest podcast for an hour and a half about the, this whole thing go listen please go listen to that okay. and it was like it's, it's a weird thing because if that can happen in the EU context, right? And it's the same thing. I was in um, Auschwitz in, in Poland uh, and they were making the, the distinction that there were no Polish death camps. There were Nazi death camps in, in Poland. Poland. Uh-huh. Right? So that nuance alone is something that is so lost on so many people. Now, Poland has its own problems at the moment, right? But it's those things that we have to be... They're the stories that we need to be telling. And that, again, is not maybe what a Western reader wants to read, mm. but it's what they need to read. And one of the things that I still... I remember doing a project in 2001 in school uh, about the Taliban in mm. Afghanistan. And this is just before 9-11. And that, that is still... Despite the fact that all I read and all I wrote and everything about that, and, and even since then, mm. I still feel that that's an enormous gap in my world. So how hard this is for you to... Go, like, if you had a story about Egypt now, if you were given... Two pages in the Washington Washington Post to tell one story about Egypt. What would that story be? Hmm. No pressure. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's uh, wow. Uh, whoa, 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 yeah. Like there's, I mean, there's a lot. There's a lot going on. So it's very hard to to pick. But right now, I'm very interested in. Uh, so TikTok has blown up in Egypt. Okay? Cool. It's massive, and uh, I mean the whole Arab world. And but there's been this weird spate of arrests of uh, especially young women mm-hmm. who do maybe sexualized content of some kind. So uh, so dancing. Dancing. Or, I mean, some of it is pretty graphic, but yeah. uh, dancing, well, simulated sex, whatever, like a bunch of stuff. And suddenly uh, there is this weird. Again, there are these arrests during Corona time, mm. which I think is really like. I mean, there there has been some coverage of it, but I'm also interested in really delving into... Uh, this is something that happens very often in Egypt. Like, suddenly there is a political... I mean, this happens everywhere, but, like, there is a political crisis of some... I mean, because, you know... Um, or a social crisis, or social a human crisis. crisis, yeah. And then suddenly there is this, like, I don't know, they'll arrest LGBT people, or they'll arrest, uh, you know, these young women. So just like a long, I'd love to do a long read about a history of this. Like, what does it mean? Why is this? Why is it still successful? Have uh, why why haven't people seen through what this actually is? Yeah, a lot of people. I mean, a lot of people have obviously, but the majority are like, oh, oh my god. Yes, keep mm. maintain our virtue, blah blah blah. Yeah. So it's interesting. Like, what does it mean about Egyptian and like this parallel Egyptian society? Because virtual so- Egyptian society, which is like the people of my generation, younger generation, they live totally different existences. So, yeah. so I would love to delve into to what that means. Mm. Uh, in, in my mind, right, as soon as you start pitching that story to me, and I'm pitching an inverted commas yeah, here, right? Yeah. The first thing I'm thinking of is the religious history of the Middle East, yeah. right? That this is some sense of this technology in TikTok is providing them with a place to liberate themselves. Yes, totally. Right? Very so, much. But, but again, I'm, I'm also aware of the fact that that's 
white guy with a beard <laughs> sitting in Stockholm <laughs> thinking this. And, and this is where, you know, I need... I need you. I yeah. need you to tell me if I'm right or not or I need you to go and find out because I can't report that story. Yeah. That's not, I don't speak the language. I don't fucking have TikTok. <laughs> you know, but, but you know, somebody who understands. I don't know why, but, <laughs> exactly. but I'm fascinated. I, well, I'll tell you what, I'll dance for you before you go and you'll get it, you know. But, but for those kinds of stories, do you feel that as a freelance journalist now working in these corona times when media are slashing budgets, there's nobody oh advertising. Lord, the worst. Yeah. Do you feel that that's a story that you would be able to tell, that, you know, that somebody might might give you a chance to tell in the near future i mean i've pitched it no one's taking it so far Shit, man. <laughs> so, from, so, so no from, uh, moving swiftly on from my real, real life experience no i mean there, there has been some coverage of this but i but not in a uh in-depth way i believe like not in a it, looking at a historical context looking at uh again because egypt is complicated that way there is this yes there is this conservativeness but also there's this crazy libidinousness yeah. going on at the same it's time it's nuts man <laughs> it is so it's 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 a it's a peculiar place that way yeah, uh, we tend to shove all these middle eastern nations together right? yeah and uh, it's not like that every context is so extremely different yeah. like i mean you can't it's very hard for example to to, to come you know compare tunisia and egypt tunisia yeah. is tiny and a functioning democracy and uh and has its own set of problems and whereas egypt is massive it's 100 million people and the hugest army in the middle east and a whole set of other problems um so it just it always seems to be on the edge of chaos yeah in egypt like every aspect of society is like this could go nuts in any <laughs> second <laughs> but it, the thing is it is it's like control chaos yeah, exactly, always. Yeah. it never explode like except during the revolution obviously but like it never like so that's also very hard to explain. Like it's it's yeah, it seems like bonkers, but it's it functions and it's weird. Functions and dysfunctions and yeah, it's it's again, it's a it's it's hard. That's that's the thing. How can you capture that essence? Like how can you capture that um again without doing like I also have I've been thinking lately about this problem of like pitting nations against each other, you yeah. know? Like I feel it's so it's cheap. It's cheap, and it doesn't contribute anything, and it it, it it makes everyone defensive. Yeah. And then we don't really get to see each other, because it's like, I need to defend, you you, you know, and, and this is what's happened in Sweden. It's like, I need to defend the Swedish way, and like then you end up with op-eds and DN, even, about how foreign media is getting it all wrong, and it's fake news, essentially. And yeah. You know, so again, this pitting of nations, I feel like this is also something that's very problematic. And I don't know how to break that exactly, but... I, th I think it's very difficult to break because an awful lot of the time when we go and we tell a story or when a politician says something, or that, we speak in absolutes. Yes, exactly. And we have, it's, we have a very hard time rowing back, right? So mm. every hill that comes in front of it, we climb it and we're there to die on it, you know? Yeah, Instead yeah, of yeying. saying, look, at, I got this wrong, you know? And that's what I'm, I'm trying, the one thing, and it's very difficult to do as a man because it's, we're not programmed for this, right? But I'm trying to have the humility to, to not be, you know, like absolutely conclusive about one thing. Mm. This is wrong and you will not change my opinion ever. Thank you. I and like your you, God voice. Yeah, it's pretty good, isn't it? God, God is all over this podcast. I don't know what it is. You know? This is a spiritual experience yeah. talking to you. But, um, I come with Egypt and all that. Exactly, all this Coptic knowledge. But, all this biblical uh, stuff. But, but, but that whole idea that we can't change, because I was talking about, actually the perfect example of this is Anders Tegnell himself, state epidemiologist here in Sweden, right? He's held a press conference every day at two o'clock for God knows how long, three months. And he did a, an interview with Radio Sweden or Sveriges Radio uh, recently where he said, with different information, we probably would have done things differently. Mm. And all the world's media, including someone in Sweden, went, Tegnell said he did something wrong. I go, no. What he actually said was, we made decisions based on the information we had to hand. And mm. we made the best decisions we could. Mm. If we had different information, we, we would have made different decisions. Mm. Not, we would have made the same decisions anyway. And that's obvious. But he's speaking as a scientist. He's not speaking as a politician. He's no. not speaking as a communicator who's trying to sort of convince somebody of his own word. He's just saying what happened. Yeah. And yet the whole world hops on that and went, oh, Sweden have admitted they're wrong. And now we've moved on. Yeah. And now the whole world has got this kind of thing of, well, Sweden fucked it up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. and, and that's not really fair to him either. So no. this idea that, that he can't admit that with different information we would have done things differently. But before we wrap this up, I just wanted to ask you about this thing of 
uh, ISIS and the far right in Sweden. One thing I'd, I'd want you to tell me about to begin with is how hard is it, and this is the, you know, it's like asking about women in comedy, how hard is it as a woman to cover ISIS? How much access can you get? Uh, what kind of things do you want to be sort of standing there in their camp or do you want to report from afar? How did you go about that work? Oh, man. <laughs> Clock's ticking. <laughs> I really, like... Why, as a woman, questions always like. Oh. I, I, I don't do them. I make it an <laughs> no, exception no, but, for yeah, you. I mean, but yeah, I, yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, why? But okay, but I mean. Um, uh, please, please start your answer with as a woman. Is, it's interesting that, that I don't, I'm, I mean, don't hold me to this, but I feel like the majority of people who've been covering ISIS have been women. Actually. I yeah. think so. Like, I'm thinking of, I mean, my bureau chief in, uh, in Beirut and uh, Liz Sly and colleagues at the post and colleagues at new york times and it's mostly women i mean it's it's mostly white women actually the, 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 exactly <laughs> the only irish reporter uh, who did that lisa smith story is a, a woman called norma costello yeah and she did that can't think of another irish woman who did it uh, yeah. salone anderson whose father terry anderson was a hostage in beirut i've seen her writing about them over the years i think she's actually working on a book as well so you have some competition there yeah <laughs> but it, that's that's an interesting dynamic do you think i don't know because of what happened maybe in the 80s that you know that people have changed their approach to covering things like isis or extremist movements in the middle least i think i think the thing the nice thing about being a woman is you have double the access actually because you can access what you 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 can talk to women yeah. as well as men yeah and men also tend to underestimate you yeah i mean um i remember like um in north sinai when uh where, which is where like isis is kind of like or a version of isis is like rattling around in egypt um uh, i remember like this was before ISIS was a thing. Even yeah. I remember there was it was it was a it was a ter- it was like one of the um, it was a faction called Ansar Beit al Maqdis, um, and which eventually turned into like uh, ISIS and um, or became affiliated with it. Uh, and and I remember I talked. To, we managed to reach this guy, um, and we got great, 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 great. Like we got great work from him. They want to talk. That's the thing. A yeah. lot of these people, they want to be heard. They want the West. Yeah. They want the they want world their message to know. Out there, like, so they yeah, don't care. Yeah. I, I think they're they're indifferent. Your man, your woman. I mean, of course, it has its own set of problems being a woman in that context. Yeah. But I really don't think it's a disadvantage because mm. again, you you really when people underestimate you, they will blurt out any shit. Yeah, because and, they don't respect. Uh, yeah. So I don't know if this. <laughs> If, the, if this podcast allows profanities, but anyway, but <laughs> oh god, yeah, okay. we're long past that stage. Okay, there, okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> then okay, I will expl- expletives will uh, will fly, but um, uh, yeah, no, I I really think it, it actually, yeah, you 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 have a bigger playing field, hmm. I believe, because again, you can talk to you know women that have been compromised by ISIS, women have been recruited by ISIS, and they would be afraid to talk to a man. Hmm. Um, so yeah, I, I really don't think it's, I don't, I, I don't see it as a handicap. Yeah. I think, I think it, it, it it's like rocket boosters. <laughs> you actually find it be- beneficial. Yeah, to I really there, like, believe yeah. so. I really honestly believe that it's, um, it, 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 again, yeah, of course you're more vulnerable in some ways, mm. but you're, I mean, when you're out there, you're vulnerable man or woman. So yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, it makes when you, no difference. When you sort of copy and paste that experience and that knowledge to what you've tried to do here in terms of covering the far right in Sweden, yeah, uh, have you have uh, had any benefit? Do you find the same thing that people will talk to you openly uh, as a, a woman from the Middle East here? You know that maybe they don't I have mean, as much respect. I, I mean, I've had very limited experience in this so far. Sadly. I, try, I try not to talk to people. But, uh, <laughs> but honestly, yeah, I mean, like I've only, I haven't, I haven't really delved that deep into it yet. But like. SD have no problem talking to me yeah. like they're, they're um, uh, his, I believe their spokesperson is Henrik something yeah I know the guy I'm talking about I can't remember his surname yeah I can't remember yeah. his surname either and he's he's amenable to talking to me he has yeah. no problem talking to me when I've uh, when I've reached out in the past they're not like be gone brown lady but I mean they try to pretend to be like uh, we're okay with immigrants but not really yeah, yeah. <laughs> You're you're fine. You're, you're fine. fine. Exactly. These guys over here. Yeah, yeah. I always love that. I love this thing that gets told to me. Oh, but you're the kind of migrant we need. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I'm like, oh. I, I usually say, look, I'm a foreigner. I'm over here taking a job as Swedish person to do. I married one of your women. You know, hate me, baby. 
I'm here to be loathed. Thank you. <laughs> exactly. So add to the self-loathing. But finally, Eva, where do you see yourself going here? Do you see yourself staying in Sweden? Do you see yourself chasing ISIS around Egypt or the Middle East again? What do you want to do with... What I want to do? That's a complicated question for me. Yeah, you have, like, have to be an mostly adult Mostly I would like to finish my book, frankly. <laughs> um, which is not actually about uh, ISIS or anything like that. It's about... Uh, it's a history of... Um, of studio photography in Damascus. It's Hang on a second. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on, a, you can't tell me it's about ISIS and then it turns out about studio. It's a very cute book, actually. But, um, but yeah, so it's very... No, it's about... It, the idea is, like, it's just because archives are... It's about yeah. archiving in, in, in Syria and, like, the problem of... Uh, of how archives are being lost, have yeah. been lost to us. So how do we restructure? Mm. How how do you replace these parts of history? How do you retell history when so yeah. much of it, and also the, the evidence of it is gone? Yeah. So that's primarily what the book is about. And the the, the personal archive is also something that both in Western culture, but in Mid- Middle Eastern culture as well. You know, the weddings, the marriages, the yeah, deaths, the births, all that kind of thing. All that's recorded. But in situations of conflict, they are among the first things to get destroyed exactly. or to disappear. Exactly. You know? I actually uh, I spent a lot of time there recently going through old sort of hard disks just so that you know when I'm long gone that my kids will have their their pictures of themselves as kids yeah. you know and it's fascinating to be able to trace those things uh from you know i mean in ireland we actually don't have a whole lot of records from the time of the famine in the 1840s oh, because everything just basically disappeared mm. so we can get back that far in our family trees but no further mm. and that leads to a sense of of rootlessness because yeah. you know certain things certain people just weren't important enough to be recorded you were born you lived and you died and nobody ever knew exactly and in that situation then you know it, it leads to this sense of you know who, who were we who could we have been you yes. know I think that's one of those stories that I think it gets back actually to the thing we were talking about, about humility, about, you know, the, the, the magnitude of history and the things that we're responsible for reporting on. But th- that's the next, that's the big thing now is to... I mean, finish my book. Fi- I mean, I have, um, I have a bunch of, I mean, a bunch of other projects. I, I'd really love to work on this beat, actually. <laughs> it's like to really... On the far continue. right beat? Or, yeah, yeah, I would really love to, to invest time. In, I don't know how, like at, at present, everything's corona, corona, corona. But, yeah. uh, but this this too will pass as George this too, Harrison's Yeah, own, of yeah? course, as all things do. As all uh, as all terrible things do and good things. And um, so, yeah, I, I'm also very interested in that. I don't know. Uh, maybe I'll change my mind. As you see, I fluctuate a lot. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's basically it. Well, I'll tell you something for nothing. I'm definitely looking forward to seeing your work on the far right. But the book about studio photography and ISIS, I, I want that. I want the advanced <laughs> copy. Hiba, it will happen. It will happen. <laughs> Hiba Habib, thank you so much for talking to me today. Thank, thank you. Thank you, Phil. Thank you.